Welcome back to TopCast and to my discussion, my ongoing discussion, on Popper's lecture on the sources of knowledge and of ignorance. It appears in many places, but probably the most important place it does appear is in conjectures and refutations. I'm taking my time going through this because, hey, I'm enjoying it. It's good writing. It's clear stuff. It has examples of where this material is useful, both in a historical context and today. So I'll be interjecting with my own thoughts on what Popper has to say. I just happened to finish recording another TopCast episode about another thinker who comes to ideas about rationality. And there is just a poverty of coherence there at times. Not something you get in Popper. And so this is why it's so good for me to come back to something like that. Because my other critiques when it comes to reading other people's ideas and trying to understand where they're coming from can leave me at times deflated. As if there is good stuff out there. Why aren't people concentrating on the good stuff? Yes, sometimes they can be completely ignorant of it. Perhaps they read it, as in certain cases I know they have, but then forget it. Or read into it what they expect to be there with not realising that there's something actually quite counter to what they think about the nature of knowledge, for example. I suppose knowledge is a tricky beast to a certain extent. We inherit so much throughout our schooling, education and culture about what this thing knowledge is. We had to wait really until Karl Popper to be given a coherent picture that more fully explored whole aspects of what was hitherto a kind of mysterious thing, this knowledge stuff, and how it is that we come to construct our ideas about reality and whether or not we can say that these constructions accurately represent or model or explain some part of reality. I think we can, and I think Popper says that we can as well. And so our knowledge contains truth without being the truth. But this is sometimes hard to grapple with. The whole notion of conjectural knowledge can be a challenge for rather many people. It was certainly a challenge for the ancients in trying to understand what this stuff is and how it is we come to understand reality. And Popper has been speaking about in this particular lecture the classic philosophers, and in particular, the philosophers in the empiricist tradition and the philosophers in the rationalist tradition. I ended my last episode on the notion that the truth is manifest doctrine comes in these two styles. The British empiricist view, that of Bacon, you just observe nature and derive knowledge or observe the facts of reality, let's say, and the continental European view, that of Descartes, that our Reason cannot generally lead us astray. In either case, we can have the truth. And when we see it, we can understand it as the truth. Now, there are virtues that do flow from this. This leads to some wonderful stuff, a liberation from authority. But whatever the case, the only explanation under that view of why it is that we make errors now and again, where our so-called fallibility comes from, because we aren't really fallible on this view, we just see the manifest truth. The only explanation is we're being deceived by some greater powers. A conspiracy is afoot, keeping us in the dark through lies and deception. Other people, the authorities. This is why Popper was at pains to say that the liberal tradition would have it, following Milton among others, that in a battle between truth and falsity, 
Truth will out. Truth will win that battle. And therefore, censorship is always wrong. Now, Popper was kind of saying, not quite. Censorship is wrong, but not because the truth will always win the battle. He will come back to this, but as we already know, people are fallible. So knowledge production is an imperfect journey of attempting to identify errors and correct them. And the only way of doing this is to have it out in the public square, so to speak. So don't have censorship so the errors can be corrected, not so the truth can be manifest in some way. It might seem to be splitting hairs, but it's not. As Popper emphasizes, this truth is manifest doctrine is the root of all tyranny. And he explained, Popper explained how Plato and others, because they thought was truth must manifest, thought the government, the kings and the rulers, that they are quite right at times to just lie to the populace. Noble lies were there because the regular citizen was incapable of ruling. Their blood, the blood of the average citizen, did not contain the right characteristics to enable them to understand what it took to preserve the greater good. Unlike the God-given gold in the blood of the ruling classes. They could understand because they were born to rule. Hence, lies by the ruling politicians can be okay. Now, we all must admit, we know of the politicians who do this kind of thing. It's almost a trope now, the lying politician, the government minister who insists, well, policy A will only cost X dollars, and they keep the details from us knowing something about how much it will in fact cost, or what the costings truly were without massaging the figures. Or rather, the tax cuts are coming, but after the next election, then they don't. Or in this day and age, saying this source of energy really is cheaper than that one in the long run, when they either know the opposite is true, or they don't themselves fully understand the details. And that's a kind of dishonesty too. You know, you could have this prosaic honesty of saying, I just do not understand the details but I'm taking it on the authority of the experts. Okay, so that's bad, but at least it would be honest. And rather often one gets the sense what some politicians should be saying this, and because that's really what they're thinking. You can tell they don't understand some of this stuff they're talking about. A parochial timely example that I probably shouldn't bring up in a podcast like this, but recently in Australia, one of our own ministers in charge of energy policy was laughing, literally laughing at the idea that anyone would suggest nuclear power as a solution or part of the solution to our current energy problems. This is ignorance of the highest order, but I digress. Ignorance is not quite lies. It's the lies that I am concerned about and was concerned about. But all that said, I may have been too quick last episode because there is indeed a virtuous deployment of lies by government in the protection of the city and citizens. We need only consider wartime. It was right in World War II the Allied governments would at times say that the day of the commencement of the Battle of So-and-so would be a Wednesday when they knew it would begin two days earlier. This kind of misinformation given to their own citizens, deceiving their own people, is warranted. Or having a stated policy, let's say, of never negotiating with hostage-takers or terrorists, no matter the circumstances. That might be their stated policy and what they say to the cameras and to their own citizens. And yet behind the scenes, they might very well be negotiating with the hostage takers and terrorists. These lies protect the city and citizens and are on a continuum with all those lies that police and just regular people tell in order to defend themselves and each other. Lies in the service of self-defense. They're quite right. 
Lies can be considered a kind of force. The withholding of information or deliberate deployment of genuine misinformation, that often misused term for a claim with which I do not agree, misinformation is simply a lie. And a lie is simply something I think is false but will act as if I think it's true anyways in order to deceive. It's about deception. But telling the Nazis there is no one else in the house is not wrong though it's a lie. I could go on, you get the point. These are cases where Plato's lie by leaders in the service of protecting the citizens is quite right. But those cases are exceptions that prove the existence of a general rule. Deception by politicians is wrong precisely because they are fallible, and so is everyone else. And only by telling the truth all the time, or almost all the time, can there possibly be a chance for error correction and progress. Not the guarantee of such correction and progress, just the opportunity for it. An opportunity that does not exist under regimes of heavy censorship by an elite who think they know better. That they can always know better arises in the philosophy of Plato because of a truth is manifest doctrine and a kind of racism, this idea that you're born into the ruling class or born into the labouring class. And thus, the populist need at times on Plato's view to be deceived. It all sounds terrible, but let us just recall that the empiricism of Bacon and the rationalism of Descartes were forces that liberated civilization from a worse fate of being entirely under the thumb of other human authorities as the disseminators and validators of knowledge. Think for yourself and understand the truth yourself was the message of both the British and continental enlightenments. False though parts of the epistemology ultimately are. So, what does Popper say next about all of that? We're up to now part six of On the Sources of Knowledge and of Ignorance. And he goes on to say, quote, This false epistemology, however, has also led to disastrous consequences. The theory that truth is manifest, that it is there for everyone to see, if only he wants to see it, this theory is the basis of almost every kind of fanaticism, for only the most depraved wickedness can refuse to see the manifest truth. Only those who have every reason to fear truth can deny it and conspire to suppress it. End quote. This is clearly a religious type impulse that a person is bad because they should see the manifest truth of the holy book, let's say, or of the teachings of the priest or prophet. But even today, modern incantations of certain philosophers, certain philosophies, have the same idea that certain people are bad people. They don't just have the wrong ideas, they're bad people, or perhaps they're mixed people, as I sometimes hear. Partly good, partly bad. This is a category error of, as I've said before, there are good ideas and bad ideas. The bad ideas tend to suppress the good ideas, tend to suppress problem-solving, tend to suppress error correction, and so on and so forth. We all have a mixture of ideas, problems floating around inside of our minds, but we are not identical to any of them. We have problem situations, and we draw on certain ideas. Many of them may be false, but they solve the problem for us. But just because we have a whole bunch of bad ideas, us, qua person, as a person, are not bad. Our actions can be bad. Our thoughts can be bad. But we are just that thing that has certain ideas and generates certain explanations. But we are responsible for our ideas, however, and responsible for reflecting upon our ideas. Because we can fall into fanaticism as well, just as Popper says there. 
One way to avoid that is to recognize the truth is not manifest, to recognize errors everywhere and you are error prone. Let's continue. Popper goes on to say, quote, Yet the theory that truth is manifest not only breeds fanatics, men possessed by the conviction that all those who do not see the manifest truth must be possessed by the devil, but it may also lead, though perhaps less directly than does a pessimistic epistemology, to authoritarianism. This is so simply because truth is not manifest as a rule. The allegedly manifest truth is therefore in constant need not only of interpretation and affirmation, but also of reinterpretation and reaffirmation. An authority is required to pronounce upon and lay down almost from day to day what is to be the manifest truth, and it may learn to do so arbitrarily and cynically, and many disappointed epistemologists will turn away from their own former optimism and erect a resplendent authoritarian theory on the basis of a pessimistic epistemology. It seems to me that the greatest epistemologist of all, Plato, exemplifies this tragic development, end quote. And don't we inherit some of this today? This idea that there are authorities, particularly in science, and there is such a thing as the science, that certain scientists pronounce upon and lay down almost from day to day what is to be the science, and learn to do so arbitrarily and cynically. Certain politicians certainly relying upon particular scientists who can be relied upon to say the right things. What is the science? Some people saying, we are the science, I've heard recently. This is a sad state of affairs, and it leads to this pessimistic epistemology that certain authorities in academia and in the intellectual circles, certain people well-credentialed in science, end up saying, we are the experts, we understand the evidence, we have the evidence. It's all about a particular group of people, a priesthood, if you like, suggesting the way to validate knowledge, the way for everyone else to validate knowledge, is to defer to their expertise. Not to check whether or not the claims being made contain error or not, but by virtue of some highly credentialed committee of people who designate a particular thing as being, let's say, the science and the evidence, and what is, of course, settled. Popper goes on to say, in part seven now, quote, Plato plays a decisive part in the prehistory of Descartes' doctrine of the veracitous day, the doctrine that our intellectual intuition does not deceive us, because God is truthful and will not deceive us. Or in other words, the doctrine that our intellect is a source of knowledge because God is a source of knowledge. This doctrine has a long history which can easily be tracked back to at least Homer and Hesiod, end quote. Now, we look at a passage like that or try to understand what's going on then, and many people, many people will grimace or even laugh at something as juvenile as something like that, seemingly juvenile. How could a genius like Descartes think anything like that? Well, of course, he is not a juvenile. He was trying to figure out what this stuff knowledge is. He was trying to figure out how we come to understand the world. And he was just under the misconception that, well, it has to be absolutely true. A misconception people still carry around today. It's just that they don't think that God is the one, that God is the one who is able to designate something as certainly true. They take the God out, but they keep the certainly true part. So I mean, there's a sense in which, if you were to listen to some scientists and philosophers and thinkers today, that their idea of epistemology is even more naive than this. They've thought less about this question than what Descartes had. Descartes had a problem. How is it that my claims about reality can track reality? How do I know what I'm saying isn't completely in all respects false? All he could come up with, 
amongst other things, was to say, well, we begin with the idea that I can't doubt my own existence. Now, how can I be sure of that? Well, the divine exists. How do I know that? Well, I've got a proof for the existence of the absolutely perfect God. The absolutely perfect God being perfect by definition is not going to deceive so when you have this sensation of being absolutely certain about something, you can be certain you're absolutely certain and what you're thinking is certain is absolutely true precisely because it is guaranteed to be as such by a certainly existing God. It's quite a rigorous idea if you think. False, okay, there are problems with this, but it's not as naive as some of what you hear today where they take out the God and they take about the validation criteria and just say, well, we're the experts who have the evidence and we know for sure the evidence is incontrovertible the science is settled it's the same idea settled science okay absolutely certain true manifest truth or god is telling us what is the absolute truth pick your misconception pick your misconception it's the same mistake fundamentally the idea that there are certain cases in which human beings are in fact not fallible and there are certain reasons why that are deployed in, in defense of this idea. But it's all wrong. It's all an error, okay? Because error is everywhere. We can find some truth some of the time, but we can't say what it is. What we have are explanations which contain truth, useful information that solves our problems, but also contains misconceptions, and ultimately in the final analysis should be expected to be false. Let's continue. Popper goes on to say, quote, To us, the habit of referring to one's sources would seem natural in a scholar or a historian, and it is perhaps a little surprising to find that this habit stems from the poets, but it does. The Greek poets refer to the sources of their knowledge. The sources are divine. They are the muses. The Greek bards Gilbert Murray observes in The Rise of the Greek Epic 3rd Edition, 1924, page 96, quote, Always owe not only what we should call their inspiration, but their actual knowledge of facts to the muses. The muses are present and know all things, end quote. Hesiod always explains that he is dependent on the muses for his knowledge. Other sources of knowledge are indeed recognized, but most often he consults the muses. So does Homer for such subjects as the catalogue of the Greek army. As this quotation shows, the poets were in the habit of claiming not only divine sources of inspiration, but also divine sources of knowledge, divine guarantors of the truth of their stories. End quote. Okay, so we've got God being invoked by Descartes as the divine source of knowledge. We've got the Greeks and the poets invoking divine sources in the form of the muses. What are the divine sources today? Is it the proclamations of certain committees of scientists? Individual scientists, perhaps. Anyone employed by a government who wears a white coat? Are there institutes? Are there refereed journals that are sometimes treated like holy books? After all, if it appears in a refereed journal, then oh, it must be genuine science and not contain error. It's published and peer-reviewed, checked by people's peers, after all, the experts of our time, the divine guarantors of the truth. Okay, so not quite. Perhaps they wouldn't call it that, not a divine guarantor. But you can be highly confident is the way they normally say it, okay? The, we're at the five sigma confidence level that this thing is true. It's not divine. It's not divinely guaranteed, but it's almost guaranteed by statistics is kind of what's implied. Let's keep going. Quote, Precisely the same two claims were raised by the philosophers Heraclitus and Parmenides. Heraclitus, it seems, sees himself as a prophet who talks with raving mouth, possessed by the god, 
by Zeus, the source of all wisdom, and Parmenides, one could almost say, forms the missing link between Homer or Hesiod on the one side and Descartes on the other. His guiding star and inspiration is the goddess Dike, described by Heraclitus as the guardian of truth. Parmenides describes her as the guardian and keeper of the keys of truth and as the source of all his knowledge. But Parmenides and Descartes have more in common than the doctrine of divine veracity. For example, Parmenides is told by his divine guarantor of truth that in order to distinguish between truth and falsehood, he must rely upon the intellect alone, to the exclusion of the senses of sight, hearing and taste. And even the principle of his physical theory, which, like Descartes, he founds upon his intellectualist theory of knowledge, is the same as that adopted by Descartes. It is the impossibility of a void, the necessary fullness of the world. End quote. This idea of the fullness of the world, it's one of those quirky parts of philosophy. Uh, Leibniz goes on about a similar kind of a thing. Um, uh, Plato was obsessed by it, of course. But what's interesting for me here is how Popper is going directly to the problems here in philosophy, that they keep reoccurring in different places. How is it that we validate as certain our knowledge? It's, it's all a misdirection. It just leads to these enduring debates about the impossibility of getting to certain knowledge and the only explanations that are marshaled in defense of this idea are things that contain obvious error when looked at carefully, and especially if you don't have a supernaturalist mindset. The problem then becomes if you've got this solution, namely, well, the supernatural guarantees that your knowledge is perfectly true. You've got a bit of a problem if you still endorse the concept of certain perfect knowledge, but you don't endorse the concept of a certainly perfect really existing God or gods or something divine, you've got a problem then. This is the problem that people have today who search for certainty, who want the justified true belief, but they don't have anything to guarantee that. And they don't seem to care. It's just like, well, we'll push forward anyway with insisting that our ideas are justifiably true in some way, shape or form without worrying about the basis. Ah, that philosophy stuff, that's irrelevant. We're just doing science here, which leads us to the truth, the science. Okay, so it's not always like that for all scientists, but the way in which some people, some people who are in, enamored by the process of science without really understanding it, the way they speak is kind of in these terms. Popper goes on. In Plato Ion, a sharp distinction is made between divine inspiration, the divine frenzy of the poet, and the divine sources or origins of true knowledge. This topic is further developed in the Phraedius. Plato even insists, as Harold Chernus pointed out to me, on the distinction between questions of origin and of truth. Plato grants the inspiration to the poets, but denies to them any divine authority for their alleged knowledge of the facts. Nevertheless, the doctrine of the divine source of our knowledge plays a decisive part in Plato's famous theory of amnesis, in which some measure grants to each man the possession of divine sources of knowledge. The knowledge considered in this theory is knowledge of the essence or nature of a thing, rather than of a particular historical fact. According to Plato Meno, there is nothing which our immortal soul does not know prior to our birth. For, as all natures are kindred and akin, our soul must be akin to ail natures. Accordingly, it knows them all. It knows all things. On kinship and knowledge, see also Fredo, Republic and Laws. In being born, we may forget, but we may recover our memory and our knowledge, though only partially. Only if we see the truth again shall we recognize it. All knowledge is therefore 
recognition, recalling or remembering the essence or true nature that we once knew. This theory implies that our soul is in a divine state of omniscience, as long as it dwells and participates in a divine world of ideas or essences or natures prior to being born. The birth of man is his fall from grace. It is his fall from a natural or divine state of knowledge, and it is thus the origin and cause of his ignorance. Here may be the seed of the idea that ignorance is sin, end quote. Okay, so all of that idea is from Plato. Plato believed in the perfect forms and that we had access in some way to the perfect forms. Let no one who is ignorant of geometry enter here. Remember, that was on Plato's Academy. He thought that mathematics was one of these ways in which we can get to the divine truth. In fact, so long as you had this clear and distinct idea, which Descartes talked about later, you were getting to the truth. You were able to perceive the truth. Would anyone think something as silly as that today? Of course they would. What is the mathematician's misconception? The mathematician's misconception, the modern incantation of this, is the idea that mathematical intuition gives you insight into the true nature of reality, of mathematical reality. What you are doing is you are perceiving the truth directly. You're perceiving the truth directly. You know, and people usually deploy, if you're not familiar with mathematics, but you understand that mathematics is a thing, you say, well, it's impossible. It's, it's simply impossible for it to be otherwise than 1 plus 1 equals 2. 1 plus 1 equals 2, it's always the trope example, cannot possibly be false. I, I perceive that as absolutely true. There's no way I could ever be mistaken about that or labor under any misconception about that. I am perceiving the truth. So they inherit this. They inherit this misconception. People who speak in this way inherit this idea that there are certain ways in which your soul, your brain, your mind, is able to grasp the divine, the perfectly true. And they deploy the example of one plus one equals two. A mathematician, certain kinds of mathematician, will apply this concept to all of mathematics, never mind just the simple statements of arithmetic, but everything that they perceive that comes to them via their so-called intuition comes to them via this divine route of inspiration, of absolute inerrant truth, not realizing that mathematical knowledge is conjectured. And it is the conjecture is a computation being performed by the brain, which itself is error-prone and you can be deceived. You can be deceived about this stuff. There is no royal road to truth. There is no perfect way of perceiving the truth. You are bound by what the laws of physics say. And the laws of physics mandate that error cannot be completely avoided. And so you can never be sure that you've avoided error. There can always be error, no matter where or when or what you're thinking or how many people are thinking about the same thing. So this is the this is the modern version of the divine origin or source of our knowledge, okay, the, the, the perfect kind of knowledge. Let's continue. Popper goes on to say, it is clear that there is a close link between this theory of amnesis and the doctrine of the divine origin or source of our knowledge. At the same time, there is also a close link between the theory of amnesis and the doctrine of manifest truth. If even in our depraved state of forgetfulness, we see the truth, we cannot but recognize it as the truth. So, as the result of amnesis, truth is restored to the status of that which is not forgotten and not concealed. It is that which is manifest. Socrates demonstrates this in a beautiful passage of the Meno by helping an uneducated young slave to recall the proof of a special case of the theorem of Pythagoras. Here indeed is an optimistic epistemology and the root of Cartesianism. It seems that, in the Meno, Plato was conscious of the highly optimistic character of his theory, for he describes it as a doctrine which makes men eager to learn, to search, and to discover. 
Yet disappointment must have come to Plato, for in the Republic and also in the Fradius, we find the beginnings of a pessimistic epistemology. In the famous story of the prisoners in the cave, he shows that the world of our experience is only a shadow, a reflection of the real world. And he shows that even if one of the prisoners should escape from the cave and face the real world, he would have almost insuperable difficulties in seeing and understanding it, to say nothing of his difficulties in trying to make those understand who stayed behind, end quote. So two things there, two things there to highlight. One is that Socrates is able to have a young slave recall, this is in scare quotes in Popper's passage here, recall the proof of a of a special case of the theorem of Pythagoras. So there are many proofs of the theorem of Pythagoras. Now, does the slave recall the proof or is the slave able to recreate the proof by careful questioning, the Socratic method, so to speak? Okay, this is a pedagogical technique that many teachers use. You know, the, the right deployment of questions to a learner, to someone trying to learn something, can cause them to use their background knowledge, and their background knowledge might consist of what they already understand of logic, what they already understand of reason, what they already understand of basic mathematics, in order to bring all of these rules and bits of knowledge together to generate something new, like a proof of Pythagoras' theorem. This is really what the slave was doing, was using these rules to conjecture new conclusions, and eventually reach the conclusion that, you know, c squared equals a squared plus b squared, something to that effect. Good mathematics teachers can do this as well, of course, okay? Just ask the student questions and rather than just hey, say, here's the proof, you know, ask the right questions and the student will reason their way to the answer and feel very excited and happy about the fact that they did it. They did the thing. They did the reasoning. They weren't just given the answer. This is what makes mathematics so rewarding for some people. You know there's an answer. Someone has already found the answer and you can do it yourself on your own by getting there. So this is really what was going on with the slave there, of course. But what Socrates and what Plato is suggesting is that, in fact, you always knew it. <laughs> there was a sense in which your soul was connected to the divine world of mathematics and was just remembering what you already knew. Well, not quite, not quite. There's, there's, it's not completely and utterly false, right? It's not completely and utterly wrong. It's just that you can know it. It's not that you already did know it, but there's an optimism in there that anyone can know. This is a wonderfully optimistic idea that the young slave can do what the learned professor can, what the learned wise philosopher can. He can they can be equal in this way of coming to learn the same thing. They, they can both start off infinitely ignorant. They can at least correct the same kind of errors and come to a mutual understanding of something. This is wonderful. This is optimistic. And then Plato goes on to talk about, well, Popper goes on to talk about Plato's cave and the idea that Plato thought, well, even if the people trapped in the cave got out of the cave, they've been trapped there, living there their entire lives. They were born in the cave. They're looking at the shadows dancing on the cave wall. They come to think that reality consists of shadows on the wall, that if they were taken out of the cave at some point later on, they wouldn't understand what they saw. They wouldn't understand actual reality. But of course, we know. What is actual reality? Is that actual reality? That too is just an interpretation of certain stuff. But, you know, Plato had a point, okay? The point kind of there, the, the, the truth lurking in, in, in this thought experiment is in the same way that the prisoners looking at the wall of the cave clearly are not seeing actual birds. They're just seeing the shadows of birds and they're not seeing actual trees. They're just seeing the shadows of trees. That 
reality consists of something more than what they're perceiving there. Well, that lesson also applies when you leave the cave. You're not directly perceiving the birds and the trees either. You're interpreting light. You're interpreting light just as the people trapped in the cave are. It's just that you've got quite a bit more of it now. (laughs) Quite a bit more light. Popper goes on, still talking about Plato's view of epistemology. Popper writes, quote, The difficulties in the way of an understanding of the real world are almost superhuman, and only the very few, if anybody at all, can attain to the divine state of understanding the real world, the divine state of true knowledge, of episteme. This is a pessimistic theory with regard to almost all men, though not with regard to all, for it teaches that truth may be attained by a few, the elect. With regard to these, it is, one might say, more wildly optimistic than even the doctrine that truth is manifest. The authoritarian and traditionalist consequences of this pessimistic theory are fully elaborated in the laws. Just an aside, of course, I'm mentioning these things like the laws, they're works by Plato. He goes on. Thus we find in Plato the first transition from an optimistic to a pessimistic epistemology. Each of them forms the basis of one of the two diametrically opposed philosophies of the state and of society. On the one hand, an anti-traditionalist, anti-authoritarian, revolutionary and utopian rationalism of the Cartesian kind, and on the other hand, an authoritarian traditionalism. This development may well be connected with the fact that the idea of an epistemological fall of man can be interpreted not only in the sense of the optimistic doctrine of the amnesis, but also in a pessimistic sense. In this latter interpretation, the fall of man condemns all mortals, or almost all, to ignorance. I think one can discern in the story of the cave, and perhaps also in the story of the fall of the city, when the muses and their divine teaching are neglected, see the Republic, an echo of an interesting older form of this idea. I have in mind Parmenides' doctrine that the opinions of mortals are delusions, and the result of a misguided choice, a misguided convention. This may stem from Xenophanes' doctrine that all human knowledge is guesswork, and that his own theories are at best merely similar to the truth. The idea of an epistemological fall of man can perhaps be found, as Karl Reinhardt suggested, in the words of the goddess that mark the transition from the way of truth to the way of delusive opinion. And Popper goes on with a quote from Karl Reinhardt. Quote, But you also shall learn how it was that the delusive opinion forcing its way through all things was destined to pass for the real. Now of this world thus arranged to seem wholly like truth, I shall tell you. Then you will be nevermore overawed by the notions of mortals. Thus, though the fall affects all men, the truth may be revealed to the elect by an act of grace. Even the truth about the unreal world of delusions and opinions, the conventional notions and decisions of mortals, the unreal world of appearance that was destined to be accepted and approved of as real. The revelation received by Parmenides and his conviction that a few may reach certainty about both the unchanging world of eternal reality and the unreal and changing world of verisimilitude and deception were two of the main inspirations of Plato's philosophy. It was a theme to which he was forever returning, oscillating between hope, despair, and resignation, end quote. So again, millennia old, this idea that a select few have access to the truth. And that was, of course, inherited by religious people over the following centuries. 
you know, monotheistic religions and so forth, who thought that particular people, okay, certainly in the Christian tradition anyway, that the Pope, for example, was able to speak the truth, speak ex cathedra from the throne and designate certain things as simply the truth. Okay, if he said that Mary, the mother of God, zoomed up to heaven, body and soul, which is called the Assumption, then it really truly happened because he said it and he couldn't make an error. So it comes from this idea. Now, why him? Well, he's, you know, he's the elect. He's one of these privileged people. Now, is it the case that today we still think the same kind of thing? Well, I leave it to the listener as to whether or not it is sometimes thought in society that certain people have privileged access to the truth and are less liable to fall into error than others. And by the way, I keep using this word amnesis, and I realize maybe that needs some definition. This is the theory that Plato had that we are remembering past lives. We're remembering our divine soul and what it knows. It knows everything. It's omniscient. When we learn stuff, or so-called learn stuff, we're actually not learning things for the first time. We're remembering things that our divine soul has, because in this world of imperfect reality, we are just a shadow world of the true reality, the, the world of forms, of perfect forms. So amnesis is this idea that we're that the process of knowledge creation is a process of actually remembering the divine. So let's go on. Popper, we're up to part eight now, and I'll finish with part eight today. He says, quote, Yet what interests us here is Plato's optimistic epistemology, the theory of amnesis in the Meno. It contains, I believe, not only the germs of Descartes' intellectualism, but also the germs of Aristotle's, and especially of Bacon's theories of induction. For Meno's slave is helped by Socrates' judicious questions to remember or recapture the forgotten knowledge which his soul possessed in its prenatal state of omniscience. It is, I believe, this famous Socratic method called in the Theotetus the art of midwifery, to which Aristotle alluded when he said, in his Metaphysics, that Socrates was the inventor of the method of induction. Aristotle, and also Bacon, I wish to suggest, meant by induction not so much the inferring of universal laws from particular observed instances as a method by which we are guided to the point whence we can intuit or perceive the essence or true nature of a thing. But this, as we have seen, is precisely the aim of Socrates' maiutic. Its aim is to help or lead us to amnesis, and amnesis is the power of seeing the true nature or essence of a thing, the nature or essence with which we were acquainted before birth, before our fall from grace. Thus, the aims of the two, maiutic and induction, are the same. Incidentally, Aristotle thought that the result of an induction, the intuition of the essence, was to be expressed by a definition of that essence. Now, let us look more closely at the two procedures. The maiutic art of Socrates consists, by the way, okay, aside, maiutic is the, 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 the Socratic method. It's just a fancy word for the Socratic method. So maybe I'll, I'll take out maiutic and we'll just say the Socratic method. The Socratic, the Socratic method of Socrates consists essentially in asking questions designed to destroy prejudices, false beliefs, which are often traditional or fashionable beliefs, false answers given the spirit of ignorant cocksuredness. Socrates himself does not pretend to know his attitude is described by Aristotle in the words, Socrates raised questions but gave no answers, for he confessed that he did not know. Thus, Socrates' method is not an art that aims at teaching any belief, but one that aims at purging or cleansing the soul of its false beliefs, its seeming knowledge, its prejudices. It achieves this by teaching us to doubt our own convictions. Fundamentally, 
The same procedure is part of Bacon's induction, end quote. And that's a wonderful way to end it. Socrates' method is an idea of error correction, therefore. It is this sense in which no one knows, as in has certain knowledge in this particular case, in the Socratic sense, but rather we know that there is something to know, and by removing the errors, the false beliefs, the prejudices, and so on and so forth, then we can get somewhat closer to the truth. We can have a better understanding by dispelling the bad ideas, sifting some of what's true from a lot of what's false. Okay, it's not perfect. It's not going to lead to certain divine knowledge, but it's going to get us closer in some sense to this actual reality, to an understanding or modeling of that actual reality. This really, this paper here, this lecture rather, I should say, is the great philosopher teaching philosophy of the greats. You're having the master himself, Karl Popper, talking to you about what the ancients, the ancients that he looked up to, said about all of this stuff and how it influenced the classic philosophers. This long tradition, this series, this generation of people from Socrates and Plato and Aristotle, leading to the great ideas of, of, of Bacon and Descartes. And all of them, of course, contain misconceptions, but ultimately are all brought together in the epistemology of Karl Popper. It really is it's really, this lecture really is a masterclass in the fundamentals of epistemology and the history of epistemology and why we are where we are now. Well, until next time, bye-bye.